0: Welcome to the Polymer Science Podcast. I am Doctor Alicia Bortes,
1: and I'm Jacob Scheckman.
0: In this podcast, we'll be speaking to researchers from around the world and talk to them about how their work is improving our daily lives. I hope you enjoy our conversation and that you learn something new.
1: Hello everyone and welcome to the Polymer Science Podcast. For this episode, I sat down with Dr. John Poyman, Professor of Chemistry at Louisiana State University. We talked about the unique reaction properties of frontal polymerization and the serendipity within his research that ultimately led to his production and international distribution of Quick Cure Clay. Under the name Poyman Polymer Products, Dr. Poyman's company produces the most durable and easy to work with clay art material on the market. No mixing, no kiln, just mold and heat one part of your beautiful sculpture to begin the cure process, wait a few minutes, and then get to painting. Dr. John Poyman is much more than a professor of chemistry. He's a scientist, an artist, historian, entrepreneur, and lover of bad, bad jokes. Tune in now for a fun conversation on polymers and art and some fascinating lessons in art history. Dr. John Poyman, thank you so much for having me down and speaking with me on today's show, the Polymer Science Podcast.
0: Thanks for coming. Yeah, yeah,
1: my pleasure. Let's uh, get started by just having the audience get to know you a little bit and what to... As much history as you want to provide about yourself, and how did you get into polymer science in the first
0: place? Well, I went to graduate school at the—well, my real interest was in nonlinear chemical systems. I saw a demonstration of a oscillating chemical reaction. It was actually—I was at Georgetown University, which is a Jesuit university, and the professor said, you know, this is reaction spontaneously changes colors, and I was just mesmerized by this. I was a freshman chemistry major. No, I was a biology major. And he said, look, it's alive. And a student said, it doesn't reproduce. He said, are the Jesuits alive? (laughs) So I thought that was (laughs) such a good joke. that I I got interested in that. And I said, huh, I want to learn more about that. And I was bike riding across Montana. And I happened to stop in at the University of Montana. And the guy who had done his postdoc studying this reaction was there. I said, huh, I'm going to go back to this. So I talked to that professor years later. He said, you ought to go to the University of Texas. That's where Igu Prigogine is, who studies non-equilibrium thermodynamics. So I went there to study chemical physics working jointly with him, an organic chemist, and he was talking about the idea with polymers, could you have reactions that would sort of imprint their behavior on the structure? Well, I didn't know anything about polymers, so I just started teaching myself and ended up doing some work on uh, sterification kinetics.
1: Can you quickly describe an oscillating reaction? Because those are fascinating to see.
0: Yes, so normally you you mix two, or, or people watch a reaction, you'll see it, you'll go from clear to blue, and that's it. There are things that are called clock reactions, where you can... You'll do it. It'll it'll be a very abrupt transition. You can program it by adjusting the ratios. But this what's amazing is it'll go say from uh, clear to blue and then clear again. And it it seems to violate laws of nature, right? And in fact, when it was first discovered in Russia, the uh, scientist uh, Boris Pavlovich Belousov couldn't publish it because they said it violated the second law of thermodynamics. Wow. And he said, "Here's the recipe. Try it." They wouldn't try it, so it wasn't published except in some obscure proceedings. And then a guy, Jabotinsky, picked it up and showed that it doesn't, you know, it was eminently reproducible. And what Ilya Prigogine got his Nobel Prize for was really understanding it wasn't oscillating through its equilibrium like a pendulum does. It's oscillating on the way down to chemical equilibrium. So that's, I was fascinated by that. I still am. This idea of self-organizing chemical systems. Uh. And then I was, you know, really interested and I started to say, well, I'll learn more about polymers. And the idea was somehow trying to Combine that, and never figured out how to do it as a graduate student. So studied an obscure thing called interchange reactions. That, you know, still nobody ever cites that work. I mean, it just was, it never caught up. <laughs> okay. But it was a great, you know, interesting project. I learned a lot. Then I went to study chemical waves, which are again a propagating chemical reaction in these were in aqueous systems, so okay. water-based reactions. And so you can start. You put a little bit of acid at one end, and a pH front will propagate. So again, it's still kind of remarkable to watch this move because normally you think. Diffusion spreads things out and you should eliminate patterns, but here when you combine it with a reaction that's called Autocatalytic meaning it makes itself go faster. You can actually get a propagating front Actually, just like the way a cigarette burns Mm -hmm. you start at one end and it propagates Okay, but it turned out there were some of these chemical waves Extremely sensitive to how you oriented the reactor so they could go Eighty times faster, depending whether it was up or down. So there was an interaction with gravity.
1: So literally, just the the vessel that it's in, how that was oriented. Yes. Wow. Yes. Wow.
0: Because there's was a the 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 fluid motion caused by gravity uh-huh. would get amplified and make these reactions go faster up or down or angle. So I did that postdoctoral yeah. work theoretically on that with a. a and Irving Epstein, who is really the guru of nonlinear chemical dynamics. We went on to write a book together, and so we're still good friends with him. But when I was there, I heard a talk at a a science, Society of Industrial Applied Mathematicians, on something called uh, SHS, Self-Propagating High-Temperature Synthesis. These are like thermite reactions. So you can mix nickel and aluminum powder, press it in a pellet and ignite it, and it'll propagate, this reaction will propagate as a combustion reaction, Uh but it's gasless. And these things go up to thousand degrees, and this was developed in the um, then Soviet Union.
1: Gasless meaning it's not you're not getting that carbon dioxide in no, water. No, it's out, it's
0: actually an oxidation reaction state between nickel and aluminum powder. So you can do but a thermite reaction right. is also a this you can do that uh-huh. and it'll propagate. And so this professor, Bernie Matkowski from Northwestern, was doing the modeling of this and showing that they didn't just go burn, they would go in helical patterns. And I was like, Wow, that's really amazing. So it was the s- spatial analog of an oscillating reaction. So, or they could go pop. pop, 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 pop. They could even go chaotically. And I was like, huh, I wonder if you can do this with polymers. Polymers polymerization reaction can be exothermic. And we can can we get a front of polymerization? So I, I was doing some computer modeling and I wrote a bad computer program. <laughs> the, the results were completely spurious. Okay, but they showed that I should be able to get a propagating front. Okay, I know now that the math the numerical results were completely an artifact. Okay, so, <laughs> so when I moved to the University of Southern Mississippi in the chemistry department, I was not planning on studying intimate polymers. I was going to study oscillating reactions and do NMR of them, you know. But then I said, "Huh, I'm going to try this idea I had with doing fronts." So I was going to. I the only Polymer I knew was plexiglass, poly methacrylate. So, and that's made from methyl methacrylate. Well, I knew so little, I accidentally ordered methacrylic acid, <laughs> which was a very fortuitous mistake because it has a high boiling point compared to methyl methacrylate, and it forms a solid polymer. So, the first time I did it, I put it in a thing, and then it got all mixed up. So, I put a little silica gel in it. I wasn't doing it in tubes, and it worked the first time. I was like, "Huh, this is good." So. The very first paper I published in the Journal American Chemical Society, I had a case of test tubes, a magic marker, and my watch. So I'd mark the little test tubes, and I'd watch how fast they go. I would change the amount of peroxide. All you need to do is take almost, you know, lots and lots of acrylates, uh-huh. right? highly reactive systems, similar to used in dental filling material. Mm-hmm. Put a peroxide like benzyl peroxide for the listeners. If you use Clearasil or um, yeah, acne creams, those are benzyl peroxide. So mix one percent of that in there, heat it up, one end with a soldering iron, and you'll see a reaction propagate. Oh, yeah. oh,
1: wow! So okay. I did
0: all those experiments. I published it in Jackson. I said, "Hey, this is look what I discovered." Uh-huh. I claimed that I had discovered this. I sent that paper to Bernie Makowski. I Said, "Look, you know, look, look how smart I am." He said, "Oh, that's good. You ought to see what the Russians have been doing for twenty years." <laughs> oh, crazy. So this had actually been discovered in Chernogolovka, Russia, in nineteen seventy-one, because they were working next to the people who were doing these thermite reactions, uh-huh. and they had the same idea. Well, of course. All we need is an exothermic a reaction that gives off heat in a polymerization. So they had published a lot of work on this self prop this, what they called, ultimately they called the frontal polymerization. So I, I had rediscovered it in 1991, but you know, it's hard for people to realize how hard it was to get access to journals, from the, especially from the Soviet Union then. Uh, actually, USM's library had it pretty good. They had a number of the journals that were in translation. And so I was able to go through and suddenly it was just like mining. It was like the Renaissance, where you find out ancient texts. These people have been doing this for 20, yeah. Yeah, I guess then it was only 20 years. But I found all their papers in uh-huh. translation. They tend to be very short papers, but they were translated. And then I could get ideas from that. And so I started working on this. But I wasn't interested in making anything useful. Right. I was interested in saying, well, huh, these have a really big temperature change. That's going to have a really big effect of gravity. And so we're looking at the role of how orientation affected it. That led me with a professor there who was retired now, Lon Mathias, got me connected with NASA. So we did worked for years with NASA doing experiments like on doing frontal polymerization on the KC-135. Okay. I'm very proud that I've done yeah. 800 parabolas on the kc That
1: That's the plane that go, just goes up and down and yeah. up and down, and you yeah. get zero G. Yeah. I, this is very, very interesting, because you've mentioned the effect of gravity a couple times in these reactions, and I was just listening to a, it's a really funny podcast called Smart List, and they had Jessica uh, Mayer, I think is her, her last name. She's a, an astronaut, and she described how one of the reasons there's essentially no free time, right? They're always working. There's always something to do on the space station, is because essentially every experiment... We have done on earth is worth repeating in space because of zero G right if there's this the gravity is this elephant in the room for all of the things we do Now I want to see your your polymers on on the space station or, or are they getting well, we the did same have, effect? We did have
0: actually experiments planned that it turned out I mean, I wouldn't agree that all experiments are worth doing. Well, sure sure yeah, yeah, because for example if there's a, a in these kind of systems if you know that there's going to be convection mm-hmm. And that's because you have a some kind of di- difference in density well, you can eliminate that effect by just increase the viscosity. Gotcha. I used to call that Mississippi microgravity. <laughs> <laughs> it's, just add some sand to it and you eliminate the effect. Interesting. interesting. So I mean you could do it in weightlessness, uh-huh. but you could get the same effect by doing it. All right. So there but there are some cases where you want to have you want to eliminate the effect of gravity, but you still want the fluid to be able to move freely. Mm-hmm. So like surface tension effects. Uh-huh. Those can be important and the only way to see that is to eliminate g, but still keep the viscosity low, and those are great experiments for doing weightlessness. Okay. So we did do experiment a lot of experiments on the KC-135. We did a, a sounding rocket experiment at uh-huh. White Sands Missile Range, and then we did have we did do some experiments that weren't with polymers on the space station. Um, when they had the the last disaster, they had no way to get experiments up there, so they had something called zero up-mass experiments. So it was a scavenger hunt. What experiment could you do with existing materials? Uh-huh. Okay, so we found that we ended up doing it using um, little cans of Russian honey. They, they don't use the little bear, uh-huh. they, they're little tuna cans. Okay, And they actually open them up and because we had watched this guy do these experiments where he takes chopsticks and he picks up balls because fluids act so differently when you eliminate the effect of, the draining effect of gravity. So the there were great experiments. So we were looking at, in that case, miscible fluids. So you take two fluids together that can dissolve in each other, but for the short time when they're together, they can act as if they're immiscible. Yeah, And that's a case where we always said, there's no way on earth to do this experiment. So we had done a lot of work on that. And we had planned to do a polymerization experiment that ultimately was canceled when there was, after that disaster, they big budget cuts, and we never got back into it. We ended up doing a similar experiment with Jeff Bezos' company, Blue Origin, a few years ago. And there we didn't have hours of weightlessness. We had maybe 30 seconds of Ugh. 10 to the minus fourth G. So and the results were not particularly remarkable. I don't think it would be worth the trouble to do it in the space station because it takes so long and it's so much expense. I don't yeah. think that was I don't think the effect we thought is going to be big enough to be really important. So all that was coming out of fronts because fronts have very sharp transitions. And so we were doing that anyway. That's how I started getting into polymer. So I never had taken a class, but I was at USM, of course, being in chemistry. I would go over and talk mostly to graduate students in the polymer science department. And I'd say, hey, what books do you guys use? Well, here's the textbook we use. And they said, okay. So I bought those and read them. And so I just started teaching myself polymer chemistry and then interacting with people over there because there was a lot of expertise. And a lot of it was peer-to-peer. My students would talk to students over there. We'd get ideas for materials. We did some proposals together with with a lot of Matthias. We had a lot of support from NASA for many, many years on frontal polymerization, microgravity and then support from the air force for doing things but it was a great resource being in chemistry because i was teaching physical chemistry but i could work with there was world-class people you know one building over that i could go talk to and we ended up ultimately then working with uh, charlie hoyle who's unfortunately deceased but i learned a lot from him on polymer kinetics and um, looking toward more practical orientation Mm -hmm. of frontal polymerization interesting so as i tell students who i'm teaching classes i've never taken a class on this So, I mean, you know, I wouldn't take me too seriously. Yeah. (laughs) But, you know, you read about it. And what's fun about polymer chemistry, most people in the field never studied it formally. Right? Because there's, you know, all it is, it's just basically how you're interested in a big molecule. So that could be DNA. It could be a biochemist. It could be a synthetic chemist. It could be your physical chemist interested in the properties of your polymer. So it's really intrinsically multidisciplinary. And the polymer division at the American Chemical Society is incredibly welcoming. You know, they. You know, I did a symposium on polymerizations in microgravity and um, non-linear dynamics and all sorts of things because, again, everyone there is from different backgrounds, mm-hmm. and so I've really enjoyed getting involved working with polymers. And by coming then to LSU, I'm particularly was hired to actually be teaching polymer chemistry.
1: Can you elaborate a little bit more on how frontal polymerization takes place, and and maybe if you can compare it to to clit click chemistry, right? Because if I think of uh, I, I do. I make thin thin films using thiolines, right? So, and for our listeners, you can. I've talked about this before, but you take your thiol monomer, your ene monomer. I essentially just mix them together and throw a little bit of initiator, and I put that under UV light, and it, it starts to take place, right? And so, but that's only going to start propagating at from from the points of where the initiator are. How can you describe the difference between that that propagation and your uh, frontal polymerization?
0: So frontal polymerization is a self propagate I'll give the formal definition, and mm-hmm. right, then put it into common words. It's a a localized reaction that propagates through the coupling of thermal transport and the Arrhenius dependence of the kinetics of an exothermic polymerization. Right? So it's just like a flame. Mm-hmm. Right? You, you, you have a reaction that gives off a lot of heat, and you heat up one end of it, it starts to react. The heat spreads, that causes more reaction, which gives off more heat that spreads. And so you have a reaction that will propagate if you put it in a test tube, it'll go between 1 and 50 centimeters per minute. Okay. All right. So mathematically, it's just like combustion. So the people I work with who are the mathematicians, they can just treat it. A goes to B, heat, and you have an exponential term for kinetics. Now, what type of kin- polymer kinetics does affect it? But formally, it's just like a burning cigarette. Yeah. Okay? So that's, that's all there is to it. There's different types of chemistries that can be used. But the key requirement is it has to have a very slow reaction at room temperature, a very fast reaction at the adiabatic reaction temperature. So that's why we use lots of acrylates because they're very exothermic and you can adjust this by what peroxides you use. So <clears throat> what initiator? So that's the beauty of it. You can just put a little bit of an initiator. The experiments are embarrassingly easy to do. I mean, really, if you had, if you take any, um, especially a multifunctional acrylate. Okay. Things used in coatings industry. So yeah. all these materials are traditional materials. So a diacrylate. Hit. Okay. Or you can even use things that are used in dental fillings, but, you know, but dimethacrylates. Something will form a solid. Uh-huh. Put it in a test tube with 1% of a peroxide. Heat up one end, and then the reaction will, you'll just see it. You'll just visually watch it. And you'll see it go, you know, a few centimeters a minute. And then when it's done, you've got this rock hard material. So that's all it is. It's it's very 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 simple to do.
1: I'm I'm looking at the, your, uh, <laughs> your your pins here, and I'm it, those look like I'm guessing some polymer clay products.
0: These are made. This is made with my product, quick yeah. Cure clay,
1: quick yeah. cure clay. Right. So, so let's talk about the. I mean, it, it's fascinating the things that you've you've produced in the lab. You've you've made a product now. It's see. you're in the art world. And it's, I mean, I love I love this direction with science integrating with art. So, can you talk about how you've done so?
0: Yeah, that was I was what I was interested in was certainly not ever art. Uh I was trying to do was do rapid repair of floors, right? So, one reason I saw the direction for frontal polymerization is, I mean, I was interested mostly from the fundamental science of how does gravity affect it, and as these reactions propagate, it's also possible they don't propagate flat. They'll actually go as a giant helix. And I mean, this is just absolutely, it, it looks like magic. Because you're watching this thing, and it's going around and around and around. And we can do it in materials and put glow in that our powders, and you see these patterns. And it's just, how does this happen? Well, I mean, it's, its its from a chemist's point of view, there's no understanding. It's nothing to do with chirality. It's just the fact that the reaction, it—it it is more stable to propagate as a helix or pulsates chaos. So I was interested in all that nonlinear phenomena. But there's a good question to ask why. What good is all those phenomena? I mean, they're just interesting, but I didn't have a good answer to that. Uh-huh. But then I got interested in the idea of what's called Cure on Demand. So there's not much market I don't see to make test tubes full of polymer. I mean, it's a one of my colleagues in Mississippi said, I don't know, you're either you're onto something important or you found a good way to fill up test tubes. <laughs> <laughs> it was a good point. I mean, because it's a very, it doesn't scale well. If you want uh-huh. to make a product, I mean, I can make it one test tube at a time, right? unless it was an incredibly valuable material. But the idea of cure on demand, let's say you want to repair some wood. Okay, so this is what I was interested in. Either you use a material that's air dried. So once you open the can up, you put it on and you wait sometimes you know hours before it dries. It could be a solvent, it could be water. That's one, there are the ones that are two part. So you have to mix two things together. And there's the resin and the hardener, mm-hmm. right? Or something like Bondo, where you put the cream hardener in. So you mix it up. But once you mix it, it's going to start to react. Right.
1: So you're very time-limited.
0: Yes. And then, But even still, it'll say maybe even five-minute epoxy or something. It may set in five minutes, but it won't reach full strength for 24 hours. So you have a lot of waste. Okay. So I said, well, what about cure on demand? Cure, not meaning medical, but as in reaction. Something that will sit out indefinitely. I can apply it, heat the, just heat the top of it, and then the reaction will spread. So that's what I was trying to do. I was trying to do floor repair. Mm-hmm. And I was fiddling around with this idea, and I had even thought I could make like an adhesive. My original product was really absurd. It was to make a cure on demand adhesive for model rocket fins. <laughs> now, this was a niche market. Okay? <laughs> yeah, no but I started a company and actually uh, rent space from the university. We have an excellent research park where you can get labs. And I called the company Poyman Polymer Products uh-huh. 3P. So I'm the 3P CEO. Did you
1: do that as a, instead of C3PO, you're like, oh gosh.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I said, I don't know if I'll make any money, but I'll I'll have a good joke. (laughs) So, so far I've made a small fortune. I started with a large fortune and now I have a small fortune. So anyway, so that was the the goal. And then I started thinking, well, maybe wood repair could be better. But I was giving a talk in uh, Portland State and a woman in the audience said, you know, I think this stuff would be good for art. I was like, ma'am, I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> she said, well, it makes all these weird patterns when it does. I think this would be good for art. So I ended up flying her out here. I said, well, come on. Let's come out and talk. Yeah. Right. So she actually made a really nice presentation on how polymers, she was, you know, pretty, she's an artist, but pretty knowledgeable about science. Uh-huh. And she gave a presentation to students about how polymers have been used through history and art. I never thought of that, so I started talking to her and making material it was kind of like a cure-on-demand fresco You could kind of smear it on It smoked and mm-hmm. I um, Said hmm. I don't know if this is really much of a market or not, but uh, I I contacted the art department and I said hey, can I uh, um, Give a presentation to your graduate students on this new product So they advertised it and about 10 students showed up so I gave demonstrations and they were playing around with it and one artist named Shelby printable said I think this would be... I'd like to get some of this because I do um, paintings of lizards and things and I can apply it and it makes a nice rough texture, okay? So, fine. This is... I've got to be... This is only slightly bigger market than the rocket fin market. (laughs) And by the way, the way to do rocket fins easily is use a glue gun. It turns out to be much better. (laughs) That was much better than my idea, okay? (laughs) Okay, somebody... One friend came over and he said, can't you just use a glue gun? I was like... You're like, dang it. Yeah, that's right, that's right. (laughs) But I started working with this artist, and we were making different formulations. It was a freshman, actually. And she was doing different formulations. And either I gave her the wrong recipe, or she mixed it up wrong, or or we were just trying things. It came out really stiff. Mm -hmm. And this Shelby came over, and she says, hey, what's that stuff there? I says, let me try that." She says, you know, this could be really good. It's a sculptural material. Um, And this could be a really big market, because you could do sculptures. It doesn't dry out. It'll sit for years. Until you just heat a part of it. And I can build up. So she ended up doing her entire master's thesis with what I called quick cure clay. Yeah. And that's what started this, was this idea that I could make a material that was a cure-on-demand sculptural material. So if people make sculpture now, use ceramics, which is, you know, that's a, that's a certain type. It's, you can't beat it for certain things. Or people use a lot of things like air-dried clays. Mm-hmm. Or they use what um, what's called polymer clays, which actually have no clay in them at all. Yeah, okay. <laughs> okay, it's 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 a poly, it's a polyvinyl chloride plastisol. You can mold it and then you bake it in the oven. All right? So those are that's a big market. People make jewelry and things, very big market. This is much stronger, the quicker clay. It's 5 times stronger compressive strength. And it has the ability to you can build it up, do things. So I started selling this just a website and, you know, going to trade shows trying to pitch it. Um, yeah. Got a, actually got an, a, an art store in New Orleans, David Art Center. Okay. And I went down there and said, hey, I'm an LSU professor. Would well, you want to see my product? And they said, we like it. We'll sell it for you. <laughs> okay. So we, this is a tidy market. But then I started, my mother, a credit to your mother, she said, you know, I think this could be good for jewelry. I said, so what do I know about jewelry? I don't know about jewelry. <laughs> so I said, well, I think it would be good for jewelry. though." So I started looking online and I found people who made polymer clay jewelry. And I wrote to several people. I said, hey, I have this new product. Would you like to try it? I sent it to them. Um, one woman named Vesta Abel in um, Tempe, Arizona, she said, "You know, this is really interesting. Uh, yeah, please send it to me." And she was trying to do it, but she kept overheating it because she didn't realize that once you heat it, it's going to self-propagate. It's a it's a self thing so I
1: see. So that you don't need to just keep going no, over. No, the no, no.
0: All you do know is he, if you heat it with a heat gun, uh-huh. not a blow dryer, about to about hundred degrees centigrade, and then once you start it, it'll go on its own. Okay. So I said, "Hey, why don't I come out and visit you?" All right. I've never been to um, that airport. I collect airports. So I want to go to a new airport. So I said, I'll fly out if you don't mind. And we can spend a weekend experimenting with this. She said, I'll invite some of my friends over. She had an, a little store that's full yeah. of arts and crafts. And she said, I think this, I think I know a company that would like this. And you know, people tell you a lot of stories. You know, everyone's like, this is going to be the greatest success ever. You ought to go on Shark Tank. Said, okay. Go on Shark Tank. <laughs> But it turns out she had worked with this company, Ranger Industries, and made a lot of money for them and was a very successful developer of stamps. Okay. People making rubber stamps. And that was a very popular, and still is, Uh people, you know, they can make their own cards and stuff. And she was very, very good at developing products. So she contacted the retired president and and then the son-in-law, who's now the president, said, I got a product for you. Um, So she went when they were in in a nearby city for a trade show. She went up at her own expense and pitched it to him. I mean, this is all just phenomenal. Yeah, the guys contacted me, say, "Hey, Vesta told us about it here. Why don't you fly us? We'll fly you up to New Jersey and talk about it." So I went up there. We talked about it. Um, we, I licensed it from LSU mm-hmm. to my company because LSU owns, you know, uh, all the materials. It's a trade secret. It's not patented, so you know nobody knows it but me. You know, on my deathbed, my son will ask me, "What's the recipe and what's the Netflix password?" Right? Those are <laughs> two questions. <laughs> and. I, I licensed it from LSU, and then I licensed it to Ranger Industries. So okay. they've been manufacturing it, and now it has worldwide distribution.
1: Phenomenal.
0: So invented in you know in Louisiana, manufactured in New Jersey with all U.S. materials, and then exported around the world. So that was a totally unexpected adventure that I would get into doing art materials. Right. But working with artists is really exciting because these people are incredible. They're natural scientists. Especially people doing crafts. Uh-huh. Sometimes artists can be you know, a little snobby. You sure. know? I don't do crafts. <laughs> okay, whatever you buy is fine with me. You know? yeah. like My wife's sort always of saying, you know, so I, I'm, I buy these things all the time. I'm constantly buying things from people because I get a kick out of seeing it. Like I saw a woman on Facebook, no, on Instagram, uh-huh. hashtag QuickYourClay, was in India. And I said, hey, can I buy some of your stuff? She says, why do you want to buy it? Don't you make your own? I said, no, I'm a professor. I don't make any, I don't do any art. So I bought some of her materials from Bangalore. Uh-huh. And she was charging way too little. So I, you know, the amount of trouble she went through to ship it by DHL, I ended up buying it. So it came back from India. And she made some really creative things with it. So that's been just enormously exciting to see. And I work with people now who are constantly coming up with new ideas. What if you put in metal powder? Well, then I get a whole thing about, well, some metal powders will catalyze the peroxide decomposition. And you don't have the shelf life.
1: Uh-huh.
0: Aluminum powder works. Bronze, you have to mix in right before, but you can't make a formulation that'll have a long shelf life. So, But there's people are constantly coming up with really creative new ways. Running, I just bought a flat iron for hair. Huh? I don't even know what that was. <laughs> but you can then put between it and make incredibly thin layers. Okay. It cures from both sides and sides. Mm-hmm. Or put a silicone mold. Again, using a $10 flat iron, which I never owned one before. So that's what, for me, is really exciting. They're constantly experimenting. What's unusual is the material is actually porous, so you can paint it with acrylic paint, or watercolor paint, or oil paint. Which most materials they're not going to absorb all of those. Right. And then it's strong. Um, you can then uh, paint it. You can uh, um, glazes on it, or you can put powder coatings on it. Originally I wasn't trying to do art. I was trying to, you know, I thought, would it be a great, super fast way to repair a PVC pipe? Mm-hmm. Well, then I do it under 80 pounds PSI pressure, it weeps. It would just leak. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, that turns out to be an advantage because it absorbs the uh, the material. Yeah. I've also sold it out to, or have, uh, it was a taxidermic company. Uh-huh. For, oh, okay. For repairing antlers. Uh-huh. So some people do anything for a buck. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Everyone listening, I, I, you know, as much I love these, I love dad jokes, but I'm rolling my eyes for all
0: of you. <laughs> well, it's actually true. I have license <laughs> to a taxidermy company. They've been experimenting because taxidermists use lots of resins and stuff in their art, which is so. Yeah. This idea that you could very quickly not have to mix an epoxy, you uh-huh. could just apply it. So uh, that market hasn't really taken off yet. But there's you just what's been fun is I just go out and meet people. It's right. Like, hey, would you look at this product? Yeah. And they say, oh, that's interesting. And especially a lot of local places. They're not, especially if you're. In Louisiana and you're an LSU professor everyone will give you a listen yeah yeah absolutely yeah and you know we just say "Hey, I got this idea would you take a look at it and they go yeah sure so I'm now work, still working on the, the wood repair uh-huh. but the art was really unexpected and that's got me really interested and I teach a course now on the materials of art for the honors college where we start out with uh, frescoes and we actually you know use Michelangelo's recipe and learn the the carbon cycle of how it reacts with carbon dioxide yeah and then we make do tempera painting and oil painting and make our own materials, and learn the chemistry behind it and how it influences the artist's ability to do the art and the ability to um, conserve it. So, you know, why does tempera painting last so long? And, then oil, and you go from oil paint from, you know, 1400 up till 1952. Everybody's using oil paint. Yeah. And then acrylic paint comes.
1: Let's, let's go. I, uh, I'm very interested in learning more about the, how polymers have been involved in history. Right. So can, can you continue on
0: that vein? Sure. If you think about the, the earliest polymeric materials were wood. Uh-huh. Okay. And this came out of a I organized was co-curated an exhibit at the Louisiana Art and Science Museum on polymers in art throughout history. Just kind of look at when I go to a museum, I look at the materials. Mm-hmm. Right? So that's just different, and it was a different focus of it. So we started out with you know wood. Now of course we don't have a lot of ancient stuff, but it would have been one of the first materials people used, right? In terms of uh, making it, um, silk. Right. You know, we have silk was used in China. We have silk paintings that go back uh, generations the all the ancient statues they weren't white they were all painted it's called polychromy, and it's been one of the big myths i mean i was a classics minor studied latin and greek and no one ever told me they really weren't white they were all beautifully painted and how do you stick it together well there's some binder which was some polymeric material it was either probably was uh, egg yolk or egg white um, something that or milk or casein so they were used as binders so you have that material then when you the really big first kind of polymeric material that's used in art is uh, a case where you actually have a polymerization during the art is oil paint. And the first oil paints are actually from the 7th century uh, common era in uh, Afghanistan. They're paintings of Buddha Uh that were done with uh, poppy seed oil. Just mix the poppy seed oil with a pigment, and then they found that oil wore hard. They're called drying oils. So that would be, they react with the air and polymerize. And so when you have an oil paint, it's one molecule. Right, because all the molecules are connected together with oxygen. So that was a, a huge advance in to study all the chemistry involved in that polymerization process. Mm-hmm. Then you kind of go along, and you don't really see much change until you start seeing in the 19th century people start doing things like shellac, which is a, a secretion from insects, mm-hmm. and that was they would mix that with ply with a wood and heat it up, and they call union cases. They were used for daguerreotypes and ambrotype cases. You can collect these on eBay, and that actually is a polymerization process of the um, shellac materials and you, these cases. Or they made things called bois dur, which was blood and wood powder. Oh my god! You can buy those; they're black. And again, it was a you take the polymeric materials in the blood. Let's take. I'll just tip a little sideway to Asia because the Asians were doing a lot of great stuff with the Asian lacquer. That actually is an air oxidative polymerization of something called urushiol which comes from a tree, which is a close relative of poison ivy. So this material actually, it doesn't dry, it has to be kept humid, but there's an enzyme that does an air oxidative polymerization. And so these materials are incredibly durable. We have samples that go back 5,000 years. And they still, you can still buy this urushiol. So that when you buy real lacquerware, um, then people tried to imitate that. I mean, real lacquerware is expensive. In the 19th century, when the British sort of discovered Japan, it became a big fad to have all kind of asian things yeah. So they would do what's called japanning which were lacquers that were made from nitrocellulose and you can still buy japanning dryers at lowes they're cobalt salts that are made to make oil paints dry faster so all this in here so in the 19th century you have people start making now modified natural polymers nitrocellulose all right and it's interesting to me when people keep talking about we need to use bio derived materials we did try that i mean Lots of things were made from cellulose. And I'll say, so she had nitrocellulose-based materials, which mm-hmm. was celluloid. Then people started, again, another natural, modified natural polymer for artistic material was called galolith, which is casein from milk reacted with formaldehyde. So you're basically embalming the milk. And this was, they would make galolith jewelry. Uh, galolith buttons. Up into the 60s, buttons in Brazil were still made out of milk. It never was popular in the U.S. because once World War II came, milk was a strategic material, and you couldn't use it for industrial materials. What? Which is always the issue of bio-derived material: are you taking food and converting it into plastics? Uh-huh. You know, you're you're competing with the food supply. But it was much more popular in Europe, and you can still buy um, on eBay lots of galolith materials. And then yeah. They would put in minerals to make them so it looks like really hard rock. Right. But if you burn it, it, you can smell the burning protein. The first true. Synthetic plastic moldable material was bakelite bakelite, which is phenol Which originally that came out of you know a coal production um, Destructive distillation of coal uh-huh. so it's just a you know one benzene ring with an alcohol on it and then reacting with that with formaldehyde. And that became the super popular material in the 1930s 40s It was first used as a scientific material it was black, but you'll see these old black heavy phones rotary phones those are made from bakelite okay incredibly durable material he licensed that he made a fortune norman bakeland he licensed it to another company and they had something called catalan which was colored version and that was made for lots of jewelry so if you talk to grandparents stuff they probably had bakelite stuff from the 30s and 40s art deco styles it was um, very durable poker chips everything uh-huh. was made from bakelite but again it was the first synthetic polymer but it was a thermostat i mean you can mold it and then once it's done you can't you know re-use reshape it, it or... right right uh-huh. very very durable still used for some electrical components because it's very durable and low conductivity then you start having now so you have jewelry you was either made from celluloid it was made from galalip, milk or it was made from bakelite those are the three things you can see from the um 20s 30s 40s the um if you want to talk about another art form the ediphones those are nitrocellulose mm-hmm. the ediphone cylinders one of the most durable recording devices, those are nitrocellulose. If you get an ediphone cylinder and light it, it goes whoosh explosively because it, nitrocellulose is... Well, so, and, combustive. Right. Right, yeah. Right. So, that that was a, um, a challenge. Then people start doing things like cellulose acetate. Mm-hmm. That's what people use now for modern films, like movie film. We don't have anything really until you start getting synthetic polymers when you've got like plexiglass um, and that becomes, you know, replacement for... Um, most toys and different art form but in terms of art your people are still using oil paint mm-hmm. up until but in the 30s the first acrylic paints in 40s were not water-based they were ac- synthetic polymers uh-huh. that were dissolved in solvent and they're still made but it's a very niche market because they, they're really stinky but they had the property of being very viscous like an oil paint right but they dry fast yep. so some early modern art is done with Acrylic paint that's not water-based. But in 1952, Liquitex came out with its first acrylic. They call it acrylic paint, which was water-based. And that transformed art because now you had materials that would dry very fast. You didn't have a long time to work with them. See, an oil paint takes literally, if you monitor an oil painting over 10 years, it is still changing its mass.
1: It's because solvent's still coming out? Not solvent. first it
0: absorbs action, and it's still undergoing reactions that are kicking out ethers and things okay so it's okay. a very and that's one reason why you get cracking because uh-huh. it shrinks as it cures yeah okay. so oil paints you have a long time to work but you really can't coat them put a lacquer on them for at least a year uh-huh. because they're still current reactions and they're smelly right <laughs> you, you have to use turpentine or something to clean your brushes okay but oil paints or acrylic made everybody was so much easier to use because it would dry fast and you could I clean up your material with, with uh, soap and water. And so if you go to a museum, look, is it if it's acrylic paint, it's after 1952. I mean, that's the break. And you'll still see people say, well, I like oil paint, but I don't have the time. So I like to use acrylic paint because it's faster.
1: So is the acrylic polymer in that new paint more flexible after it? Not necessarily. Does it, it, does it, does it crack still? Do you have those uh, problems? It
0: doesn't have that same. No, that's a good question. One is we don't have things that are 500 years old. Um, yeah. But it doesn't have that shrinkage as much. No, gotcha. that's a good point. Yeah, okay. Yeah, but it, the key feature is its ease of use. Uh huh. And that was a you know a big transformation. And there's still people who um, there's still people who use uh, casein based paints mm-hmm. because that was also still used. And you can still buy casein milk based paints that was used. There are still people like that. You still can use tempera based paint which are based on egg mm-hmm. egg yolk. Wow. <laughs> you know you is can, that smelly also or well, you can make those yourself. You gotcha, know, if you look gotcha. at all the um, medieval paintings, uh-huh. all those really brilliant colors, that's all done with egg yolk. And we've made those in class. And they're very easy to do. You just take your egg yolk and then mix in the pigments. Um, and the issue, of course, is you, you have to do it each day because the egg yolk is going to rot. So you can't store them. Now, sure. modern ones are stabilized with preservatives. But it does, again, it's good for... Again, the difference is, and I'm not an artist, but you have a very thin coating, so you uh-huh. get certain things. If you want the rich textures, oil paints are better. It's harder to do a tempera. So that's where, where the type of medium affects what the artist does and yeah. how you conserve it. Acrylic paints, you have to be careful about um, dust. If you get it too warm, you get above the glass transition temperature, it'll get soft mm-hmm. and collect dust easier. So the um, people conserving it, when they get a painting, they need to know is it oil? Is it acrylic? Um, just from how they treat it and so in terms of materials you have now synthetic polymers being used in sculptural materials like sculpey the polymer clays but i'm proud that this is really a, the you know not very often do you have an entirely new medium come out like this quick cure clay yeah and i'm hoping this you know my I'm, my claim is i told my son i said look someday all this collection will be yours. And he says, this is the thing that will have, say, $5 at the estate sale after you die." <laughs> I said, am I collecting all the original works of Matisse? Or is it just going to be a bunch of stuff that people toss out later? I don't know. I like to delude myself and think this could be the, you know, I have the world's largest collection of quick cure clay art. And some people look back and say, that's really amazing. Or anyway, I enjoy it.
1: Yeah, I think as long
0: as you enjoy it. I do. It gives <laughs> me a lot of joy. I have a room that is just full of stuff, and I just and I met the nicest people uh-huh. who are excited. They're doing things, and I'm constantly amazed what they can, um, you know, I keep buying things. So far, there's a market of one, Yeah, because right? I keep buying all their <laughs> art. <laughs> but it has just got me interested in this incredibly interesting area of art. And as I say, I'm not always so much interested in art, but I really like artists. Right. Because it is one of the toughest ways to decide to make a living. Right. If you're a polymer chemist, you can get a job. If you're an artist, it's very hard to do that. So you have to do it because you love it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's so the biggest. I, I thing. love the fact that, and I've never met a grumpy uh, <laughs> a person I work with on this year because uh-huh. it, it, it's obviously something that gives them joy. Right. Yeah. yeah. Let's let's go back
1: to your quick cure clay in in wood repair. Mm-hmm. How how is that going? I, it sounds like early on the wood repair was uh, uh, there was an issues that you were. Facing and it wasn't quite working out. How has that progressed?
0: Got it. Oh, excellent formulations. Now a lot of it was getting a really good, improving the adhesion. Mm-hmm. Because I've been working with a plywood company, and you have to meet the American Plywood Association weatherability standard. Wow. Okay. okay. And wood is tough because you know it gets wet, it expands, and so to make something, the way you test it is you I put it in a gumbo pot. Uh huh. You boil it for four hours, then you put it in a convection oven, you dry it at one hundred forty-five degrees for four hours, then you put it back in the pot and boil it, and you keep doing this, and it can't delaminate. Right. That was, it took me years to get that to work. And that was just a question of going back and looking at what makes things stick well and mm-hmm. the flexibility. So I do have materials that can do that. People that would, and again, the advantage of selling it is not to make money because I don't sell enough to really be there, but you get it in people's hands. Mm-hmm. And then they say, you know, that, that this is good, but what if you could do this? Somebody said, well, could you do an edge repair? It's like, well, I was just trying to fill a hole. Okay. So make a material I call it wood dough mm-hmm. that you could mold it and then, um, you know, set it in seconds. And I even have a guy I work with I call Bob the Builder because he was over there and I had repaired a hole and he was doing it. He said, what is this stuff? This is so hard to get out of here. I said, you got a few minutes? <laughs> <laughs> so half an hour later, after I demonstrated it to him, he said, well, this. can you give me more of this? So he's now been my kind of alpha tester. Okay. I give it to him. He uses it and he given it to other people. And he came over to do a repair at our house and he actually used it. I was like, you're going to use that stuff? So said, well, it works great. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we had a door jam. He could repair it, Yeah, heat it. And then use sand it and he was done in five minutes as opposed to having to mix epoxy and wait and he could stain it. It also takes stain, a lot of wood repair material. I mean, there are ones that do, but they're ones that are kind of plastic-like and they don't absorb stain well. Mm -hmm. But this is not intended as fine wood repair. It's more for, um, you know, like damaged wood and you want to do the repair fast. Gotcha. I've been working with some other people who are trying to help me get, you know, get a licensing deal because I can't, you know, I'm just mixing this up five pounds at a time in development, and I would like to be able to license it to somebody who could bring it to the market on a big scale.
1: Gotcha. Someone who can take this material, scale it up.
0: Like I've done with the your Clay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or who will license it, and I'll hire a toll manufacturer to make it. You know, I, I had the fantasy of being a, you know, a, a titan of uh, of uh, manufacturing. And, uh-huh. then, you know, I, you know, bread mixers, I mean, you can make these five pounds at a time. But if you thought realistically, how much could you make and scale up? Yeah. Um, there's a whole science of how you package it, how you transfer materials into packages to do it efficiently. You know, it used to be my son rolling things out by hand and stuffing it in jars. and You know, that was fine for, you know, a, a, you know, 100 a, a pounds a year or something. Sure. Like but so we, I've got some good products. I'm really proud of that you can do it. You can drill it in, put a drill, and if you whack it, I mean, it's stronger than the metal. Mm-hmm. So I think we've got some good products. Just a question. of So
1: what, what were the... Uh... Physically, when you described how you did the test of putting it in the gumbo pot, drying it, wetting it, and you're, you're, what you were looking for is that your product was still adhered to okay. the piece of wood. It can't, what you said, delaminate. It can't right. come off. So, what was causing it to, to delaminate? What would cause it to not adhere?
0: It's, it's the fact that the wood is expanding at a different rate than the material. Mm-hmm.
1: So, the material has to be able to change. Well, or shape just stick
0: it. so well. Gotcha. So a lot of it was going back to the resins and saying, what can I add in the formulation that'll improve adhesion? Uh-huh. But what's been interesting is all these materials, there's not much new chemistry. I mean, there isn't any new chemistry. Right. It's free radical polymerization. There's nothing new there. It's The, the secret is all in the fillers, mm-hmm. putting different components in that give you the mechanical properties or the moldability you want. And so that's where the real interesting comes from. It's been really formulation chemistry. Is to learn lots and lots about fillers because the resin is the most expensive component. The fillers, you know, they're you know five to ten times cheaper. So obviously you want to lower the cost, but also they're going to give you the properties you want. Uh-huh. The sandability. I mean, you make something that's too hard, people can't sand it. Yeah. And that's an inconvenience. If it's too soft, it's not going to be strong enough. Yeah. So that's working out well.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I know the other thing I saw that you had in your research interest were it was file acrylate polymerizations. Is that being employed in your in in part of the quick cure clay process? Or is it just a different research it's direction different. you're We've going?
0: been doing a lot with actually with using uh, the thial acrylate. I, I don't call it click chemistry; I call mm-hmm. it clack chemistry. <laughs> 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 but where you just take the thiol acrylate and you put a, a base in, uh-huh. and you'll have this reaction. Right. But we've been found that you can make some really nice uh, either materials for microfluidic chips that you know you just mix them together and they set. They've got great properties, so we've been working on that. And also working with a colleague, Adam Melvin, in chemical engineering. to The amazing thing is, you can actually grow microtumors in these thialacrylate hydrogels. And so he does it in microfluidics. You put one single breast cancer cell in there, it'll grow into a microtumor. So this is a model for metastasis. Gotcha. And then they have these little, tiny microtumors. Well, obviously, little, they're microtumors, <laughs> you know, 20, 30 cells. Uh-huh. But they grow inside the acrylate hydrogel that we create, which is Embarrassingly simple chemistry. Yeah, and then the idea is you can then um, expose them to different drugs, find out whether they're drug resistant, and this has worked out incredibly well. And this work again, I attribute all this to Charlie Hoyle, who was a good friend of mine at Usm, who um, died several years ago, because he introduced me to this idea, this thial acrylate. As I say, if there's one take home message, I have my whole career until last year, I only knew like three chemical reactions. <laughs> You know, that's <laughs> <laughs> and you, it's like vaudeville. You only have a couple jokes. You just keep going around different places. Yeah, and I would just do the same reactions over and over again. As opposed to an organic chemist who knows, you know, thousands of reactions. When students come to me, I said, "If you want to make new polymers, you need to talk to these people." Yeah. But if you want to make materials in a new way, then you may be happy here because we're going to do everything almost exclusively with commercially available materials that we have to be able to buy, you know, in a five hundred pound drum. Yeah. If it's not available in that scale, we're probably not interested because all this stuff is going to be <clears> taking existing resins and then doing it in a new way, this frontal approach. Mm-hmm. So
1: these, <clears throat> the acrylate materials, you're fabricating these, um, what did you
0: call them, micro microfluidic chips.
1: Microfluidic chips. So you're using microfluidics to to create these they're not they're they're not spheres they're using the word chips I don't quite understand. Oh okay well no
0: so he the, my colleague he <clears throat> makes a a, a, a a there's different ones one we could actually use the the thial acrylate mm-hmm. to make a a resin mm-hmm. and the advantage is it can you know it has a much more hydrophilic surface compared to um, silicones. Gotcha. Okay, that's one use. And we've been doing he's been doing things with that. The other is he has a a regular PDMS a silicone Flexible material with little channels, little mm-hmm. traps. And he flows through with um, droplets that contain the cancer cells and they get trapped and then it polymerizes. So oh, now I see. we have a medium yeah. because the cell can't it it, it has to be a three dimensional scaffold. Which I didn't realize that, you know, cells, whether you if you grow them in two dimensions, they will have very different properties than if you grow them in three dimensions. Oh. So you think about a cancer cell when it in the metathesis, that cell goes, it lands somewhere, it grows in three dimensions. Yeah. And that is crucial. It, you're not going to have the exact... So you may have a drug that works in two dimensions on a Petri dish. It will not work in the body because the three-dimensionality is important. So this is a way to make model systems using thioacritate.
1: That's fascinating. Yeah. So uh, is this one of the earlier examples of a, of a being able to develop this 3D?
0: No, he, there's lots of people, but the, we're do, this, this t- turns out to be... A, a really nice medium uh-huh. that's worked incredibly well, yeah. and I'm really lucky to be able to work with this uh, Adam Melvin in uh, chemical engineering. It's also interesting; it's in chemical engineering, mm-hmm. but because it's really there's lots of problems of transport, and then of course you know, he knows how to grow the 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 cancer cells. Yeah, but it's fundamentally a problem; it's an engineering problem. You have to get material in and out. There's transport, fluid flow. It's not a biochem; just a chemical problem. Mm-hmm. And again, the world isn't broken up into. Disciplines. It's just the world, and we break ourselves up into disciplines. You need to work together to solve these problems. Yeah,
1: that's a good philosophy.
0: Another nice example of thiol which I is is we're doing something called time lapse polymerization. Mm-hmm. So, imagine you want to mix it up and say, I want to apply an adhesive, and I want it to react exactly in five minutes. Okay, and I want to program that. So we said, "Well, isn't that just like a five minute epoxy?" Yes, it'll gel, but it's not done that quickly. The idea of having this kind of reaction is we use an enzyme called urease from watermelon seeds. And urease converts urea, which is in your urine, into ammonia. But the key factor is if you start the pH low in an acidic solution, when it produces ammonia, that's a base, it raises the pH. And the enzyme actually is most active at pH 7 and not active at pH 2, or 3. So what you have is an autocatalytic system. So you start this, you'll see the reaction will... The pH will go boop, and you can program that. Then you take a thiol and acrylate. When your pH goes up, it deprotonates the thiol, boom, you get a click reaction. So now we're doing this developing adhesives that are, uh, well, I'm trying to actually make a, uh, I always call it, an, a, uh, an, not an edible, not an edible, doesn't love its mother. It's actually, it could be eaten. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I'm not not okay. be confused with an edible adhesive. <laughs> <laughs> we're trying to make ones that would be like we can even do this with slime the kids do. Okay You can use the, the there. We yeah. mix it up and then it'll gel all at once. Uh-huh Okay, we're, we're actually using that using the watermelon seeds. So why is watermelon seeds important? We can do this with commercial urease, but it's very expensive and it's not stable You buy the urease and it's gonna degrade every time you open that jar. It's losing activity No company's gonna be interested in this. Yeah, we found if you grind up watermelon seeds, they are rich in urease And we developed a way to extract out little particles. And this will be about 200 times cheaper than the commercial product. And it'll sit for a year open to the air. So now the idea is we're gonna make a product where you you have a material, you put your magic pixie dust in of watermelon seeds, stir it up and you can say, I know this is gonna turn into a strong adhesive in one hour or five minutes, Mm -hmm. whatever you want. Or we're trying to do this, it actually will work underwater. So a student told me, he says, I've been testing these underwater. I said, are you holding your breath? (laughs) (laughs) She says, no, no, I'm not underwater. Just the (laughs) adhesive. Trying to do this for the Navy, that we could make a material that could be, again, inexpensive, but fast Uh and programmable. We can also program it that it will actually hold, but only for so long. Because, again, if you have an acrylate, as the pH is high, it'll hydrolyze. So you can make an adhesive that holds for an hour, but then it'll fall off. Mm -hmm. So I said, well, who wants that? A student said, well, how about temporary nails? I don't know. So we're looking at maybe you don't always want a permanent adhesive. You want an adhesive that will fall off after a period of time. So that's a whole thing that's coming, again, out of the idea of nonlinear dynamics. We started talking about clock reactions. Well, this is now a clock reaction that's safe. Okay. Most of those clock reactions are based on strong acid with strong oxidizers like bromate or chlorate. There's no way you're going to put that in your body. This Mm -hmm. urea urea system, I mean, really, it is completely benign. I mean, you, can, it, you, could, you could eat it and not have any harmful effects. And it's bio-based, but the key thing is it's cheap. So that's a whole other industrial thing that's trying to come out of this idea of studying nonlinear systems. But what can we do useful with it?
1: Yeah. Incredible. All of this has been wonderful. And that's all I've got. So, Dr. Poyman, thank you so much for being on the show today. I really appreciate it. It's
0: been my pleasure. Thank all you right. very much.
1: Yeah. And a big thank you to all of you listening to this show for tuning in and making all that we do worth the while. We hope you've enjoyed Dr. Poyman's stories and art history, and that maybe we've piqued your interest in some hands-on polymer art activities. If you'd like to learn more about using this incredible material, we've included info on where to purchase, how to use, and some beautiful examples of artist creations made using quick cure clay. And of course, if you have any questions or feedback, or maybe just feel like saying hello, please reach out to us at polymersciencepodcast at gmail.com. And as always, thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.